welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas is our new nonprofit fiscal sponsor, which allows us to access a wide range of funding possibilities, including funding available only for nonprofits, as well as not requiring us to pay taxes on your generous donations. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the dash y dash make dash project or go to the donate to why make page on why hyphen make.com retired educator jeweler and metalsmith extraordinaire bob ebendorf joins us on episode 54 of the why make podcast originally from topeka kansas bob was a star football player and wrestler in high school had the choice of a big-time college athletic scholarship or attending art school. Lucky for us, he made the right choice. After spending his undergraduate and graduate years in the art department at the University of Kansas, Bob then went on to spend a fair amount of time in Norway, honing his technical skills in metalsmithing before returning to the U.S. to teach. Bob is a self-proclaimed radical in the jewelry and metals field, often choosing to work in found objects, thrift store finds, and junk instead of precious metals and stones. After a long career in the arts, Bob's work is in the permanent collection of many museums, and at 83, he still enjoys teaching, creating, and just being curious. We had the privilege of having this conversation with Bob while he was teaching a workshop at the Pocosin Center for the Arts in Columbia, North Carolina. Many thanks to the good folks at Pocosin for allowing us to spend some time on their beautiful campus. I found out about you through our good mutual friend, Tommy Simpson. Um, I will admit my complete, almost complete ignorance of the metals field. Um, I am a woodworker, so uh, I know a smattering about a lot of things, but not much about, not much about metals. But we're here to find out what makes you tick. So Bob Ebendorf, uh, welcome to the Why Make podcast. And we're going to start with the, 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 the first basic question is, what is your first memory of making something? Going with my mother to the Presbyterian Church once a week in the evenings, where the women would come together uh, around the table with a lot of material, uh, wine bottles, string, uh, glitter, glue, and the women would chat away and they would do, they would wrap the wine bottles with string. And I had a little place to sit where my mother would bring me. And they also were all bridge players. So they would be making bridge tallies for the bridge club. So I had the opportunity to sit at my little place and putter around with materials. Um, so that was one of my first memories of hands-on with making or of curiosity uh, with my mother and the other women who came together to chat, chat away, and I was the young one that had a little place at the table. Um, and, you know, uh, the bridge, bridge playing was big at that time 
when I was very young. My mother belonged to a bridge club. So whenever the bridge club would come, they would have, she would have a name for each one of the bridge players. And they'd have a little card with their name. But also the card was decorated with little seashells or whatever. So they would be doing that where I are wrapping bottles um, and talking about family and uh, children, etc. And I had the opportunity to be in the midst of them being involved with the hand and curiosity. Right. And what do you think, when did it first cross your, your conception that you could be an artist as a living, that this is something that you could do? When did you first really think about becoming an artist? I don't think that really bloomed in reality or curiosity until I made a decision to go on after high school to a university. And I chose the University of Kansas. And in, at the University of Kansas, there was the art department. But also our high school, you know, for recruiting, our high school had one day the bus would come and all those who were interested to go to college, the bus would take us from Topeka, Kansas to Lawrence, where the university was, and we would have the day at Lawrence, Kansas, at the University of Kansas, to walk around to the art department and um, walk through, because it was a re really strong recruiting situation, so we were able to walk through the ceramics department, the metal department, uh, textiles, etc. At the same time, we were able to go to the, to the uh, cafeteria in the union, to be in the university life, etc., and to have lunch, and then we'd catch the bus and come home. So I think that that visit, which was a recruiting situation, also thought, well, you know, maybe the next step, um, instead of taking the scholarship to Oklahoma to play football or to Notre Dame to play football, I was a very strong football person, or go wrestling in, in Nebraska scholarship, I said to my father, you know, I think, I think I might go to, I'm interested in going to the University of Kansas um, and the art department. I mean, I'm, that, uh, the visit was good and my father who was in medicine went, oh my gosh. Now that is like the total polar opposite of being a scholarship athlete is like, well, instead of being a, playing football at Nebraska, I'm gonna dig ditches in Iowa. <laughs> right. So it was quite a jolt for our, my family to realize that maybe instead of following the athletic field with scholarship and a free ride, that he was going to go off to this thing in this art department. And who knows what that would lead him to. But the scholarship athletic, at least it was money for those four years. Uh, so my father bit the bullet and said, you know, well, if you're happy, then we will try to come along with the journey as well. So that was kind of a, a, a wake-up time for all of us. And so I went off to the University of Kansas um, to step into the art department. And it was just touring the university and seeing the possibilities of materials that excited you? I think that you know going to an art department at a university where you, we went through the ceramic department, there was a textile department, there was a graphic design. As we were walking from that day from studio to studio, of course they were, you know, and then 
I went back, we went through the jewelry studio, and he welcomed us, and, da, da, and then we left. Then we had two, an hour and a half before the bus was going to leave. But instead of going to the, to the, to the uh, union to have coffee or whatever, I chose to come back to the art, to the metal department, to the jewelry department, and the man head of the saw me and he said, oh, Bob, come, you know, sit down. And, and so I was included in their discussion and there was things that were going on. And, and he said, here, sit down by this person. So I had a kind of a, a hands-on experience uh, for, before I got on the bus in the jewelry lab. And Carlisle Smith was the jewelry instructor. And so he took me on with his class to sit down and be a part of their, of their meeting and what was going on. So I think that that was a very interesting welcome. Uh, and he made me feel comfortable in this uh, as a young person, um, not knowing if I would return to do this. But um, I had an hour and a half to sit in that studio and be like a, a, class, like a class member. I mean, they were casting or they were doing this. I'd sit that chair or go over here. And so I think that then when I returned home after the bus ride, um, I felt, wow, you know, this, this, this University of Kansas, you know, 75 miles away from Topeka could, could be an interesting journey, not knowing where that journey would take me in the world of the arts or metal or clay or textile, but it did perked me to look enthusiastically about going to uh, school there. Another important segment there, very well-known person from Topeka, Kansas, who was older than I, was Brent Kington. Brent Kington came from Topeka. And when I came to, to Topeka on that trip, he was just graduating with an MFA. Brent, being from my hometown, said, oh, Bob, you know, us have lunch together. So he also took me under his wing and, you know, and made me feel special uh, being a hometown person. Um, and then I think that he was also a very important footprint to open that window of what might happen or what could happen. And very welcoming, it sounds like. It was. It was that sense of welcoming, mentoring, um, and of course, Brent had no idea uh, how strong my interest was, but I think being hometown, he was also a football player. He knew my history in the athletics and da 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 da. So it was kind of a wow wow in different ways. Oh, oh right, the uh, from the glamour of football to the uh, glamour of the metals department. Uh, I never thought those two things would ever be linked together. And and what did you do when as an undergrad? What kind of work did you do? Was it a lot of technical background? I was very much enjoyed ceramics, hands-on, uh, navigating that material. In the metal activity, it was, again, just building skills between casting and fabricating and silversmithing, raising something. So it was a formative moment of time to take my high school interest in adornment, jewelry, and deepen that uh, curiosity. Um, and in, in high school, we never formed anything. We were making and sawing and soldering, et cetera. But uh, the 
at KU when I started that we began to talk about a flat piece of metal, you know, bringing it up, and it was just ratcheting it up to, to more um, technical experiences to gain skill level. So it began to put the roadmap together. Right, and you continued on there at KU to get your MFA? I continued on to undergraduate, and instead of going away for graduate school, I was getting ready to look at other places. The head of the art department came and said, Bob, you know, would you like to stay on to do your master's? We will give you a fellowship. You know, so there was, there was this uh, incentive. You can, you can teach basic design class, da 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 So there was this condiment of stay on, continue to get your MFA instead of going away to someplace else. Stay here and financially will support those next three years. So that was because I was paying my own way. My father said, you know, college will be on your ticket. So in the summer months, I was digging ditches, putting money away for the next year at school. So having the opportunity to stay on for my MFA, but at the same time had class responsibilities, teaching a basic, basic freshman design, uh, at the same time paying my, paying my way. So it was kind of like, well, why try to go away when I can do this here? You then go on to spend a fair amount of time in Norway. Walking out of the art department, oftentimes at the end of the day at one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, and there was this big yellow and black letters, Fulbright, study abroad, application, do such a, and then it said, you know, throughout some European countries. I went, wow. I don't know where I'm going. I don't have a job, but, but I'm going to be graduating soon. So a week later, walking across campus, all of a sudden I turned and headed for the library, went upstairs, walked to this door, and, and it was a, I said, this is the Fulbright office? And she said, yes. I mean, here, here's the application. You have two weeks. Uh, you know, there's still time. So I went, and I was in an art history class, very passing marks. Education was hard for me because I'm a severe dyslexic person. So that's why I think this activity of my hands became you know, my way to speak, where to write a legible sentence was very difficult for me. So I took the piece of paper, and my art history teacher, and I said, I know you had been in Scandinavia, and I'm thinking about applying. She said, Bob, she said, um, wow, you haven't got much time. Come back tomorrow, tell me what you found out in the library. Went to the library, looked through Scandinavia, and I saw that Norway was very much involved with clay and enamel and silver, da 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 da. So I went back to her the next day and said, you know what, well, Norway seemed to be a very interesting place, a lot of craft activity. She said, all right, you have this much time. She wrote down these three names. You write to these three names and tell them that you're applying for a Fulbright. And if you were successful to get the, a Fulbright, that arriving in Norway, this would be the journey during that time. One was the folk school, a folk museum. The other was the National Museum. The other person was a, a maker. So I shot off that uh, information to them. So with that support, the Fulbright Committee said, wow, you know, if, 
if we gave him a Fulbright, he already knows exactly how he would spend the money and exactly whose umbrella he would be under. So the Fulbright changed my life. Four years later, then I had a Tiffany grant, went back to Scandinavia for another journey. How did your experiences in Norway help formulate your perspective as a maker and carry on with you after your time in Norway? Deepening my skill level of making and understanding soldering, understanding the basic skill of working with metal. If it was soldering or enamels or whatever, just getting deeper that was not accomplished during the university time. So having this added experience in Norway under the leadership of some of the masters, it gave me just another leg up on gaining deep skills that I could carry on with, with expertise. And also to being in the Scandinavian culture that was so deep about uh, adornment, um, textiles, uh, ceramics, and, and the hand. Right, because there's definitely, obviously, a very, I guess, can you generalize across Norway, Sweden, and Denmark that there is a, and, and call it, and refer to it as Scandinavian modern? Absolutely. And because I, I was doing, I was taking that journey in the 50s, and absolutely, we, you know, the Scandinavian design had arrived in America, arrived in New York City, um, the Scandinavian design, the, the fabric, the, particularly fabric in Merimekko coming from Finland, uh, which was not uh, was, was Scandinavian, but textiles, and then definitely the silver world. Uh, it, you know, they had in New York on Fifth Avenue, there was this you know, Scandinavian design silver uh, store that showed the Scandinavian, not only Norway, but Scandinavian silver vessels, etc. And there's also a sort of a beauty in Scandinavian design. There's a real minimalism to it. And, and was that another attractive element that you carried with you or, or you were more interested in, in the techniques you learned? I think the minimal, visual minimal approach of the work that I was doing there was being very much influenced by what I saw in the stores and, and things that were coming out of the, the different workshops. Uh, and um, definitely the understanding in complex fabrication, complex uh, making of something, uh, learning the, those ABCs skill level that was not so well practiced in my university uh, training or university experience. Much more of an emphasis on skills than, than maybe necessarily design yeah. and creativity. And of course the design was coming from their designers in the company, but the, the makers in the, in the workshop were, they would look at the drawing and they would, you know, okay, this is the coffee pot. Um, okay, we need to do this, this, and this, because they knew how to take that piece of metal, bring it up to here, looking at the drawing. But what was nice is having that experience in the factory that when I came home at, to an academic job teaching, I could talk to the student about hand skills, but could also talk to them about the real world as you know, a company, um, 
production. I was just much deeper, richer as an educator because it wasn't just about me making something. When you came home from Norway, what kinds of things were you making? How, how, how did you think as a designer, now that you had mastered a lot of technical aspects? I came home to my first job in Deland, Florida at Stetson University, but my vocabulary was very Scandinavian, very clean, highly polished, very minimal, um, you know, beautifully made, not a radical person like I became later an outlaw, but coming back with that hardcore skill level, um, you know, I carried that, not, not that trapping, but I carried that, that emphasis into the work when I returned to my first teaching job in the, at Stetson University, and my work had a strong Scandinavian, clean design, highly polished uh, rhythm, you know, that all about design, and later, I became much more of an outlaw. And what was that transition to your uh, to outlawism? I think that I began to take the skills that I had learned and began to work with materials that were very foreign to the jewelry community. I mean, it wasn't about gold and silver and diamonds. It was about something I found on the street uh, and broken car glass and bringing that together, using my jewelry, using my skills, my craft skills, to put these things together. So the museum curators used to say, Bob, you know, you are so fucking crazy. He said, you are just breaking all kinds of relationships about craft, but your, your investigation of curiosity is propelling you into the world of adornment in a very unusual way. So um, I was really pushing against the problem of what uh, adornment was. I mean, adornment was in the, in the context um, and began to work very radical with the skills I had, but also my choice of materials. It was not about gold and diamonds. I mean, it was much more about car, broken car glass than a run over tin can and um, something I found at the flea market. Was that sort of maybe an exploration of really thinking about what's precious and what's not? Very, very much so, very much so. Because I came to the point where precious was not that, it was more about design and more about pushing the parameters, the edge, the edge of what ornamentation in the context. Right, because I mean, in many senses, preciousness is you, it's your ideas. It's all in the eyes of the beholder. And, uh, and definitely I pushed the museum curator said, Bob, you know, you have pushed the parameters so uh, intensely, but that's why we want these pieces in the museum, because you are breaking, you are breaking rules, but also, too, they're beautifully done. Right, but there's a definite connection, I think, between your older work and, the, and, your, and your, I like that term, outlaw work. As, you, as the rule breaker work, because you're, you're, you're using that, that foundation of skills. I mean, I can say that in the Yale, uh, Yale Silver Collection, which is extremely, Paul Revere's pieces are in the, in the Yale Silver Collection. And my coffee pot, sterling silver co coffee pot that, made, that I made in Norway, a uh, double spout a handle, you could pour it this way or you could pour it that way, built from four slabs of four slabs of silver, da-da-da, and that piece is just 
a killer. And I'm so proud that the, that the silver collection at Yale captured that piece because it is a, a very, very uh, elegant example of silversmithing and the fine craft of what I learned and came home from in, from Norway. And looking at some of your other work to it, and, and speaking of something with two spouts, you're starting to think about something in terms of a narrative, which I think is really, I think what that's what brings it all home for me because the best work tells a story. You know, with 29 museums around the world that have examples of my work in Europe as well as here, I'm very proud and very happy that those objects have found their way to those collections and uh, are a part of their museum's journey, uh, all the way from this fine silver and gold work to more radical behavior. Uh, and so that document um, I'm very happy about. Right, so how do you think about function uh, in your work? You talk about sort of in rethinking about adornment. Function in, in the hollowware pieces, if it's a coffee pot or uh, a bowl, etc., it's important that the handle works or the spoon works to the, to the bowl or the handle to the this. In the jewelry, it's in a sense, I, I don't care how radical it is, but that it isn't sharp, that it can be put on the body and doesn't get caught in the fabric and da-da-da-da-da. So there is that uh, concern. Uh, it, on the radical pieces that are, are dormant, but again, that you can put them on, take them off without ripping your garment. Have you ever delved into just purely sculptural work where there's, there's no parameters? Oh, yes. Um, very much playful, playful of that. And I mean, I make a lot of objects that are just for the, on the wall out of mixed materials. Um, I've not done, uh, I've not dealt into installation work a little bit, but uh, I've done a lot of pieces that you hang on the wall, um, and you know, uh, not a not a painting, but you have the pin back on the on the back, but the front is adorned with metal and uh, different things, and you hang it on the on the wall. So, sculpturally wise, yes. Um, and the, while I was here, I did a lot of pieces that were art in a box. I mean, cigar box, the background like theater, the background, the foreground, and then the front. So there was, when you look inside the box, the cigar box, you have stuff going on back here, then there's something in here, and there's something in the, in the front. And kind of like a Joseph Cornell behavior. Uh, so, I mean, I'm a great person of curiosity and a great sense of curiosity about materials. So it doesn't have to be gold and diamonds. It can be broken car glass off the street I pick up and a run over tin can, and I can make love to it and enjoy every minute of it. And, and what would you say your process is? How do your ideas kick off? If I ever get stuck looking for ideas or needing to be a transfused and regenerated, I can go to any museum and get unstuck. I can go to look at the African collection. I can go look at things from uh, Nigeria. I, and I can get unstuck just by looking at the beautiful things that the curator has put in that display case. So I can remember going to the Met whenever I, I went from New Paltz to New York City to teach at the, at the 92nd Street Y. And after my class in the morning, it would be one o'clock, 
the class that I was, I'd go have lunch with Barbara Rockefeller at her apartment. Then from the Met, I would then go to, from her home apartment on Fifth Avenue. I'd go over to the Met and have my gourmet meal of looking at different departments, the iron, this, that, and the other. So the museums have been so important in my world of curiosity, of different cultures around the world. And they have been my gourmet meal. And the museums are so important to me because they are the richness of, of our culture and of our, of our material culture. And do you tend to go on them with sketchbooks? Do you keep a very elaborate sketchbook or a journal? When the Smithsonian came for my archives, they said, we want all your drawings. And I said, well, and he said, no, we really would like the drawings as well as your correspondence or whatever. Uh, so there was a lot of drawings early on, but now, unless I have a high-end commission and I need to talk to the committee to get the okay, then I will do the drawings and watercolor, da, 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 so that when they meet and have the drawings, they say, well, this is what this is going to be, look like, and he's going to use silver here and gold here and enamel here, um, so they can understand what I'm saying. But that's not necessarily a process you use for your own ideas. You go right to the materials. I go right full bore, and it's very much here, very much from here, and also the objects that I've selected to look at to treat in a jewelry context. Right, and sort of see how the materials play off each other and how they speak to each other and, and what, they want to, uh, what they want to say. Absolutely. I mean, if you were to have images of my workbench, it looks like shit. I mean, it just looks like, what the fuck? I mean, it's, all this stuff is there. When the museum people come to visit, they look and say, oh my God, we gotta have photographs of, of this. I mean, this, what is, this is your workbench? I said, yes, and well, I, how do you find anything? I said, well, look here, I, I know where every little object is, this broken piece of glass, this toenail here, da, da. and I said, you know, it's just like bringing it down here. So my, my workbench is quite a scene, quite a visual scene. I should, I should send you some images. I'd love to see some images of your workbench, because I think everybody's workspace, in some ways, reflects how they think. It's, it's their, their, their internal organization is reflected in their workspace and somehow also reflects their process as well. Um, but another big part of your life has always been teaching. And was that something you wanted to do or a method for survival? I was very fortunate when I was in Norway. I all realized that it was time to come home. And I'd had a nice journey there, but I had no so I started, I took the dictionary, and in the back of the dictionary are all the different universities. So I had Xeroxed off some things that I had done. So I started sending out the mail to the, you know, looking for, looking for a job academia-wise. And the university, in the land Florida was one of the places I sent to. And when he got my uh, inquire about uh, is there a position, because they had jewelry, uh, he said, no, nah, no. Nah. He threw it in the wastebasket. And a friend who was in graduate school with me in Clay was at, ten, at University of Florida at ten, in uh, Miami. And I had told him that I was coming home and I was looking for a job. And he said, well, you know, throw your name in Deland, Florida. So I did. 
that letter went in the wastebasket. He calls the land and says, you know, did you get, get a letter from Ebendorf? He said, well, I did, but I, you know, he said, well, he's in Norway. Well, how can I hire him? He said, check him out. He said that he really would be, uh, you know, I, I think that he could do the job. So it was, it was kind of a fluke that he then reconnected back to me in Norway and said, you know, the job is here. If you come, let's do it. So it was academia from the returning. I am an academic freak. I've been blessed by Stetson, University of Georgia, New Pulse, and um, that was the last position. Well, East Carolina University, oh, too. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, yes, I am an academic brat, but thankful for that. But that gave me time to be an educator and pass off what someone gave to me in, you know, in training. At the same time, had three months off in the summer to do intense work. Right. And, and I was the question, so how, how did you... That's how you balanced your, your, your time between being a maker and being a teacher. You always took the summers to yourself to make work. Uh, during, during the school year, I'm up at 5 o'clock in the morning at my bench before I went off to school, do my schoolwork, come back home and help do the housework uh, to take my responsibility as a mate. Uh, but I was a hard, hardcore I mean, I'd be up at five o'clock in the morning, work for two hours before I would walk to the university, and then come home and be a, a, a husband, and then find myself at the workbench later in the evening. So it's been full, yeah, it's very serious uh, studio practice. It's been my life, but education has been such a joy to be a part of. I'm so proud to have had that time to pass on what someone gave to me, and then I could give that to somebody else and set up challenges as well as some technical information that I could share with them. So I take those academic years uh, with great joy and great pride because many of the students have gone off and have been major leaders. And also too, I mean, you know that, that I was one of the founding members of the Society of North American Goldsmiths. I, I, exactly, that was one of my next questions. That came with Brent Kington. Brent Kington was also on that uh, early first wave of board members, and I, he brought me on board as the, the, little, the young puppy uh, with the other major people. So I'm quite proud of my Years of service to SNAG. Right, that's right. We said that's Society of North American Goldsmith, and 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 that's a big community building thing. That's that's. I mean, I was one of the first people that was involved in helping create the, and being involved in the furniture society and and creating these creating these organizations helps create community and creating community helps make more makers. So you know that you know exactly how proud you are of that time of service to your field. And boy, I feel that very much about, and it's still a lot, snag is still alive. Right, with, right. Its, with its bumps and grinds. Well, that's the life of an artist. Life of an organization as right. well. Right, the life of an organization as well. So as we start to wrap this up, Bob, what, what are you working on right now? As, what's, what's exciting you right now? What's inspiring you right now? Continuing the world of curiosity and the joy of different materials, 
using my jewelry skills, my, my hand skills to create objects of curiosity. But curiosity to me right now is such a joy to step into that, oh, what if I took this road or this road? Well, this road is travel, but this one's not traveled so often. I think I'll go over here. And taking that journey in, into a road that's not as traveled. Do I need another gold star? Do I need another, another museum? No, I just love sitting down, breaking saw blades, and being in my world of curiosity. But it's pretty much around adornment or objects that hang on the wall. But making love, making love to the material. If it's paper, wood, or silver, or gold. So at 83 years of age, if I wake up in the morning and don't hear an organ playing or smell candles, I know I have another day on the planet and I'm with great gratitude because that can go, that could disappear at a heartbeat. Uh, and so I'm at that time in my life realizing that each day is a gift and I still love breaking saw blades and being in the world of curiosity and also like coming here to be part of an educational relationship. And I think that's the perfect place to wrap it up. Bob Evendorf, thank you so much for being a part of Why Make and Why Make. Be playful and follow the heart. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. Please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the-y-make-project or go to the Donate to Why Make page on y-make.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.